So last week, we talked about the purpose of John's gospel that he wrote so that we might believe that Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, is the Christ. I mean, even that, right? Like, you think about that. Like, this, this guy, he was a normal human being, or at least he appeared to be a normal human being. You know, there was nothing about this man that, that should strike awe in us when we would have looked at him if we had been around some 2,000 years ago. But John writes so that we might believe that that man is the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. We talked about the evangelistic nature of this gospel, that it is a word for the unbeliever that they might become a believer. We saw how this played out in Thomas's story. We also saw that this gospel is a word for those of us who already believe that we might be drawn into deeper communion with Christ as we see his story unfold. And so this gospel that, that we preach, this gospel of Jesus, it has the power to save us, it has the power to keep us, and it has the power to flourish us, if I'm using that as a verb correctly. So John gets right to work, and the path he chooses to get there is a path that stretches all the way back into the beginning. Only this beginning is a little bit different than the beginnings we might be used to. See, all of the gospel writers, they talk about beginnings. Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes into this story about John the Baptist, who sets the stage for Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew starts his story with Abraham, the father of Israel. Remember, Matthew was speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. He was highlighting the Jewishness of Jesus. And then there's Luke. His genealogy stretches all the way back to Adam, which takes the reader back to the sixth day of creation. But when we get to the fourth gospel, we're introduced to something incredible, something that for most of us, if not all of us, is utterly incomprehensible. Like it literally makes no sense. And something that if we allow it to, will birth in us awe-filled worship. If we allow the Spirit to have his way, it will draw us into deeper communion with God that we might believe. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 1. I'll have it up on the screen as well, and, and you'll have that passage in your bulletin if you have that with you. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. We're going to start with verses 1 through 2. And so it says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. First thing that stands out to me as I look at that, and the first thing that probably stands out to careful and even casual readers of John throughout church history are those first three words, in the beginning. In the beginning. Immediately we know that John is drawing our attention all the way back to the first book of the Hebrew Bible. And the point that John wants us to fully understand is that his story begins before time ever existed. His story begins before time ever existed. Maybe a better way to understand what John is getting at is that his story really doesn't have a beginning, at least not in the way we understand beginnings. But there's more here. It says that in the beginning was. For understanding Genesis 1-1 and creation as the primary backdrop 
for what John is getting at. The statement is simply saying that whatever was in the beginning has always been there. This is a pre-creation statement. This is a pre-creation statement. The point, which I was getting at just a few minutes ago, is that the part of the story that is simply incomprehensible The part that when we start to wrestle with it, we're just left scratching our heads, is the fact that there is no beginning to this story, the story of Christ, and so we're forced to make a choice. We'll either stand in awe of this story, or we'll just shrug it off as something ridiculous. So right at the beginning of John's gospel, he's confronting us with a decision. He's telling us that in the beginning, before time ever existed, there is something eternal. There is something that there is no start to. Do you believe that? That's what he's doing. Now, I've had this conversation with my son, and he, he would sometimes say, like, like Dad, I don't, like, I don't get it. I'm like, no, I don't either. He's like, but, like, that doesn't make, there can't be no beginning. There's a beginning to everything. I'm like, you're right. There's a beginning to everything, but yet there's no beginning to God. And even now, some of you might be squirming a little bit. You're like, but, like, no, but that doesn't fit. Like, it's like, I don't understand how there's no beginning. And, and, the, and the goal here, as John lays this out for us, is to kind of strike that chord in us. Like, like yeah, I know it doesn't make sense. You're not supposed to make complete sense of me, God is telling us. You're not supposed to make complete sense of me. You're supposed to be in awe of me. You're supposed to be completely blown away by me. And so, yeah, wrestle with that. See, he doesn't tell us, like, don't try to figure out. No, we should wrestle with this. But we should wrestle with it in a way that leads us into deeper communion with God, into more worship of God. Not to try and disprove, but to accept by faith while wrestling, like like not an irrational faith. Like the, The Bible doesn't call us to an irrational faith. Like we are supposed to be a thinking people. But we're not supposed to outthink ourselves, I guess is the way to put it, right? Like, we're not supposed to be too smart for our own good. And so God wants us to wrestle, but he wants us to get to the point where we simply say, okay, okay, I don't get it, but I'm in. And and the best part about this introduction, this prologue, there's a lot of that going on. We're going to see a little bit more of that. And so will we stand in awe or or will we simply shrug it off in disbelief? We're then introduced to the main character of the story. Matthew and Mark begin with Jesus Christ. Luke starts with John the Baptist, and John introduces us to the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, before we talk about where the Word was and who the Word word is, we need to wrestle with why John chooses this language. There are hundreds of pages written on why John chooses word or logos, if you're familiar with that, to introduce us to the person of Jesus. And while all of it's really interesting, Stoic philosophy, Gnosticism, the views of the Jewish philosopher Philo, 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 I think it's Philo, um, I believe that John is pretty clear as to what he's trying to communicate to us. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says, considering how frequently John quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, that is the place to begin. That is the place to begin. And so so Genesis 1, it's still our backdrop, right? 
And as we learned in our last series, when a New Testament writer quotes or alludes to something in the Old Testament, then we should look at all of it, like the whole context, right? He's not just saying, look at this one little verse. He's saying, look at the context. Look at the entire passage. And what is Genesis 1 about? It's about creation. And how does God create? He speaks. He speaks. In fact, Psalm 33.6 says that by the word, logos in the Greek Old Testament, the heavens were made. By the word of God, the heavens were made. God also reveals himself through the prophets by his word. And there are instances in the Old Testament that where God heals and delivers his people by his word. It says in Psalm 107:20, he sent out his word, his logos, and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And so the point, and I'm going to quote D.A. Carson once again, and I have a slide for this, is that God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, in revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son, Jesus. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, this new covenant, this new testament that we read, this, this, this new wine that's been poured into new wineskins, it's all about the self-disclosure of God. And the self-disclosure of God is the person of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. The gospel of John makes much of the Christ, makes much of the Son of God, makes much of the second person of the Trinity, that we may believe he is the Christ, that we may believe the word that was in the beginning with God who walked in flesh is the promised Messiah. And, and the cool part, I love what it says, he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact imprint. When we see Jesus, we see God. When we see Jesus, we see God. All right, let's keep, let's keep going here. Where am I at here? Where was this word? The text says that he was with God. The text says he was with God. Another way to say this is that the word was in close fellowship with God. A few things going on here. One, John is distinguishing the word from God. He's distinguishing the word from God. That's important. I want to hold that for a minute. And in making that distinction, he's providing for us some basic building blocks for the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the, the theology of the Trinity. The Father and the Son are distinct. We're going to fill that out in just a minute. He's also revealing, which I think is so beautiful, the intimacy found within the Trinity. He's showing us this deep fellowship that exists within the Godhead. That's just a fancy way of saying the Trinity. 
And now the reason I keep saying Trinity is going to be made clear in just a minute, but, but let's, let's just keep working here. Notice what else he says about this word. Not only was the word with God, but John tells us that the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The scriptures teach us that this word was in close, intimate fellowship with God while at the same time being God. Now we need to remember Genesis is the backdrop here. And right after Genesis 1.1 is Genesis 1.2. And it says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so right here in just two verses, right? Two verses, John lays out for us the mystery of the Trinity the eternal nature of the word, Jesus the Christ, and the intimate fellowship shared between the members of the Godhead. In two verses, right? He just lays it all out for us. And, and, and what do we do in response? Because every single thing that's brought up in these two verses, they make no sense. Like, kind of, sort of. It's kind of like, wait, what? Like, wait, wait. So, so you're saying there's no beginning. You're saying there's one God who exists in three persons. And you're saying, like, they love each other so intimately and that there's just this deep communion. But, like, I don't understand how this all works. And so we're driven to, once again, worship. We're driven to worship. That's what's going on. Right? This is good news. This is incredible. This is like, this is, the, this is the stuff, right? This is when you start digging at the scriptures and you start reading, you start wrestling. This is the stuff that gets exciting. You're like, oh, there's, there's some heavy things going on here. And we seek to understand them. We seek to try and comprehend them. And remember, we talked about the gospel of John, that it's shallow enough for a child to understand, but it's deep enough to be studied for the rest of our lives. And right here, we're getting a taste of both. And what's the response? Worship. We worship. That's what God is trying to draw us to. Now, to go off on a little bit of a tangent, what the, God, what the gospel offers us for those of us who have entrusted ourselves to the word is an invitation into that intimate fellowship. An invitation into that intimate fellowship. We're going to see that unfold in just a minute. So let's keep reading verses 3 through 5. It says this. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So verses 3 through 5, a couple of observations. Not only was the word present with God, and not only is the word God, but the word is the means by which all things came into existence. Right? The word is the means by which all things came into existence. And, and we saw that, right? Even as you read in Genesis chapter 1, how does God create? He creates by the word of his mouth. He speaks. One commentator translates verse 3 like this. He says, all things were made through him, and apart from him was not one single thing made. Was not one single thing made. What's the point? As we look out over all of creation... Every single bit of it has the fingerprints of Jesus on it. Every single bit of it has the fingerprints of Jesus on it. But more than that, each of us were formed and knit together in our mother's womb by the hands of Christ. Now, I don't knit. I don't sew. But from what I've seen, and Jolie, you can help me out here, it's a process that pays careful attention to detail. And those needles, I think they're needles, right? Am I using the right language here? 
When placed in the hand of somebody who knows what they're doing, they produce something beautiful. They produce something beautiful. Next Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Am I correct, right? Next Sunday? And while the point of that day is to fix our attention on the unborn, which we will, what if we also took a step back and recognized the wonder and beauty of all of humanity? Follow me here. Every individual made in the image of God, knit together in their mother's womb. Those who vote differently than some of you might. Those who look differently than you look. Those whose values differ from yours. Those whose lifestyles might be an affront to God. Do we see beauty in them? Do we see beauty in them? Are we willing to love them? To welcome them? And see, that's when we start to squirm a little bit, right? right? We, can, we can get on board with the loving them, right? We can get on board with the even seeing beauty in them. But it's, it's the welcoming part that we start to like because now it's personal, right? Now, now the people that we have maybe built up walls to keep out, we're being called to invite in. And that, that makes us squirm. But, but this is important because, because we need to remember that, that the fingerprints of Jesus are in all of them. That matters, right? And I'm, I'm talking about some of the people, and, 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 and I think we can all use our imaginations, like the people who maybe you, you are watching on, on, new, on the news and, and, and you start cheering with the, with the anchor saying, yeah, we hate them too, right? Right? Because we, we do it. We do it. It's hard not to. It's hard not to. Or maybe, maybe there's specific groups of people that we look at and we say like, yeah, we don't, we don't want them anywhere near us. We don't want them anywhere near us. It's when we start to squirm is when we're called to invite them in. But here's, here's what's really important, right? We don't have to squirm. We really don't have to squirm. Because look what it says in verse 4. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. What, what we need to allow ourselves to understand is that not only is the word the author of creation, but he's also the author of new creation. See, the word is revelatory. It reveals. He reveals. He's light, but he's also life. He breathes life into those things that are dead, right? You got to track with me here. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's once again drawing our attention back to Genesis 1, and God's first created word is, let there be light. Right? So he's, he's, he's doing this Genesis thing. It's cool. And in the blink of an eye, what happens? There was light, right? Darkness is snuffed out. A better way to understand the light shines, as it says in verse 5, is the light shines on, right? Like, you know the song, the beat goes on, right? It's kind of like that, right? The beat doesn't stop. The light doesn't stop shining, meaning that the light of Christ is, is just going to keep on going and keep on shining, and, and, and so much so that not even the gates of hell are going to prevail against this kind of light. And what this light does, and what it did at the incarnation and throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, is that it went head-to-head with darkness, with evil. Right? There's something spiritual going on here. And to be frank, there's something spiritual behind all of the darkness and evil that exists in this world. And when the darkness goes head-to-head with the light, it doesn't stand a chance. 
right? We're saying amen, but we got to believe that. We got to believe that. Few things. If we say amen to the fact that the darkness has not overcome it and that the light shines on and that the darkness has no chance, then we have to live in light of that reality. We have to trust God. And any fear we may have because of maybe the way our culture is, is, is heading or where we think it might be going or of particular groups of people, whatever, that's not of God. That's not of God. Fear is not of God. Like if you remember one thing from this morning, fear is not of God. It's not of God. And when we start being afraid of the culture, when we start being afraid of, of certain people within the culture, certain groups of people within the culture, all of a sudden what we start doing is we start building up walls between us and others so much so that we cannot love. Like we are, we are stripped of any ability to love because, because now there's this in between us. And some of us, it's this and this, and, and, and we, start, we just start building walls. Now, now I get fear. Right? We all understand fear. What God is calling us to is to trust him, is to trust him. Because you know what he did? He filled us with that light, right? Cheryl read that, right? Like, like, your city set on a hill, like light of the world. He, he gave that light to us, which means that we can now step into the darkness. And, and we don't step into the darkness like guns blazing, right? Like that's not how we step into the darkness. That's not really how Jesus stepped into the darkness. Now, there's a couple instances. We're going to talk about that as we walk through this book. But fear prevents us from loving. That's just true. That's just true. At least the type of fear I'm, I'm, we're talking about, right? I'm not talking about being afraid of putting your hand on a hot stove. I'm talking about being afraid that somehow God's not going to win. Being afraid that somehow the church is not going to make it through the 21st century. Being afraid that somehow, like, the culture is going to prevent people from, from coming to know Christ. As, as, as though there's ever been a strategy that's worked for that, Right? Like we forget, and I'm, I'm off now, I don't know what I'm going, but we forget, we forget that it's the Holy Spirit that saves, right? I, re I wrestle with this, right? Right, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lead pastor of a church, right? I, I have these thoughts in my head, like, well, what can we do to grow our church? What can we do? Like, I gotta be honest, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is that God saves sinners. That I know. And, and that hasn't changed. I had this really cool experience. I want to share it because it was like super overwhelming and it like made me cry this week. So I got to speak at my son's chapel on um, Thursday. He goes to Ambassador Christian. And, and I spoke. I, 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 I did my best. Like it was a rough week. I didn't get to put as much time into it as I would have liked to. I preached on um, Philippians chapter 2. It felt like a passage I know pretty well. I can do it. Like... Um, and I was praying on my way there because I didn't feel like super prepared. I just didn't. Like, I was just praying. I was like, Lord, like, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to speak. I'm going to do this thing. And let the chips fall where they may, right? 
And so I do the thing, and it was fun. It was great. I get back to the office, hanging out in the office with Pastor Lee, with Debbie. All of a sudden, the phone rings, and Debbie answers the phone, and she's like, um, it's, it's a teacher from Ambassador. A student wants to talk to you. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what did I do? I'm like, I'm, like, I'm sure I said something that was wrong. I know. Um, <laughs> and this, like, and this is like, I, you need to hear what I'm saying. This, has no, this is not for me, like, to pat myself on the back. This is literally, like, this is the spirit of God. This is how he works. So apparently, like, this little fourth grader gets on the phone with me. He says, he says, hey, Pastor Jonathan. I'm like, I'm like, or he said Pastor Scalambro, because very formal. Um, I said, hey, how are you? He's like, I just wanted you to know that after you spoke today, I decided to become a Christian. And I was like, I was like, what? I'm like, from that? I'm like, really? Like, guys, the spirit of God is at work. We have to believe that. God saves sinners. We don't. We don't. We have to trust that God is at work. And so to kind of make our way back to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. And I think a few things are at work here. One, we have to trust God. We have to trust God. Any fear we may have because of the way our car, I already said that, right? And two, salvation is of God. He will show the world who he is. Our job is to keep pointing people in his direction, both through how we live and the message we preach. And the message we preach has a lot to do with how we live, and how we, how we live has a lot to do with what we truly believe the message is. How we live has a lot to do with what we believe the message is. Paul captures this, um, what John is saying in his letter to the Colossians. I want to I read it to you. I might even have a slide for it. Verse 15, I'm just going to read a whole chunk of scripture to you because it's just that beautiful. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I think the point that Paul is getting at in that passage in Colossians and the point I believe we need to wrap our minds around that the fingerprints of Jesus on, are on every single human being is that we were alienated. We were hostile toward God. But he saved us. Right? And so we need to be able to view the world around us through the lens of Christ, through the eyes of Christ, recognizing 
that if it were not for his grace, we would be in the same boat. We have to believe that. There is nothing special about you that you came to faith. It wasn't some intellectual sort of like aha moment that you figured out. It's the Holy Spirit. It has always been the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, he was hovering over the face of the deep and God said, let there be light and there was light. It's always been a work of God from beginning to end. We have to believe that. If we don't, we become arrogant and prideful and we are no fun to be around. And let's be honest, there are a lot of people who claim the name of Christ who are just no fun to be around, right? That's just true. That's just true. Text keeps going. And I love this. John interrupts this, this rhetorical masterpiece to give us an example, right? To give us an example, to kind of bring the cookies down on the bottom shelf, as one of my professors used to say. It says in verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So this man that is spoken of here in verses 6 through 8, he was sent from God, whose name was John. So we're talking about John the Baptist here. And the fact that he has been sent from God, that's significant. Again, he's tapping the Old Testament for some help. Moses was sent from God. Isaiah was sent from God. Jeremiah was sent from God. All the same kind of language being used. In John 3.17, it says that Jesus was sent that the world might be saved through him. And so the point is that John the Baptist bridges the world between the Old Testament prophets and the person to whom all of them were pointing. He's like the last prophet to point us to the one that all of them were talking about. They were all sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. They were all sent to proclaim the wonder and majesty of God who are all summed up in the person and work of Jesus. It's the point. The text solidifies that point when it says that he came as a witness. John was sent to bear witness, to point beyond himself. We start to see John's use of signage here beginning to emerge. Not formally, but John's witness or testimony is functioning in the same way. Even the language, check out what it says. It says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Anyone remember what it says in John chapter 20 that we looked at last week? It says, the purpose of this book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe. John came that we might believe. Same thing's happening here. Same thing's happening here. He's almost like bookending the book. Because after John 20 is just that last chapter, which is the epilogue. And so he's bookending his entire gospel to say, it's so you believe. It's so you believe. And, and I really love what's going on here because the reality is, is that like, if I ask you, did, did John the Baptist, Stephanie, did John the Baptist preach the gospel to you? Is that how you got saved? No, no, right? Like, but it says that, that John the Baptist is the means by which all 
right? It says all, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, all my belief, right? Anthony, did John the Baptist preach to you? No, he didn't, he didn't preach to me, but check this out, right? Check this out. The reality is that not everyone in John's gospel or beyond John's gospel believed because of John the Baptist, but, but the reality is that everyone who has ever believed can trace the path all the way back to the first one who preached Christ, which is John the Baptist. That's kind of cool. Like, like, he's in our story. He's in our story. He prepared the way for the Messiah, and so he is a part of every single one of our salvation stories. That's cool. That our faith stretches all the way back, but, but John makes it clear that it doesn't just stretch back to John the Baptist, it stretches back to when? The beginning. The beginning. The beginning. Now, as incredible as that first witness was, and he was incredible, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel that among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He wasn't the point. He wasn't the point. And John makes that clear. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light, to give testimony about the light. And this, is where, and this is where this point we've been driving toward all morning. And we need to take our cues from both John, the writer of the gospel, and John, the Baptist. Our role and calling is to make much of Jesus. Which means our lives need to be structured so that we reflect the beauty and the wonder of the light. Our lives need to be structured so that we reflect the wonder and beauty of the light. And what we'll see as we work our way through the gospel of John is that the light of Christ is best reflected when the hands and feet of Jesus serve the head, which is Jesus himself. And Jesus himself is a man marked by love, by mercy, by compassion, and by kindness. That's, those are the marching orders, guys. That's what we're called to. Now, like I said, we're going to see times when Jesus asserts himself, when he gets a little angry, but we're going to have to pay really good attention to who is on the receiving end of that anger and when he asserts himself. Right? I tell you what, it's not the woman caught in adultery who's on the receiving end of that anger. It's not. It's not the sinners who are caught on the receiving end of that anger anger and him asserting himself. It's all the religious folk. That's who's on the receiving end. The people who think much of themselves are on the receiving end, right? Got to store that away because we're going to see that emerge a few times throughout this gospel. So as we close our time this morning, what I hope we were able to see from the first eight verses of John Go John's gospel is, one, the awe-inspiring and mysterious beauty of God. That there was never a time when the word was not. There was never a time when the word was not. Two, that God, in all of his power, might, and sovereignty, he chose to create and to speak and breathe light and life into darkness. And that he did that in creation, and that he continues to do it in and through us, his new creation. The light shines on. And that, 
as the light shines on, we need to be challenged to not fear the darkness that goes head to head with the light. Because the darkness will not overcome it. Who do we trust? And finally, that our job is simple. We bear witness to the light. We bear witness to the light. We walk in the footsteps of John the Baptist, pointing people beyond ourselves, loving everyone who crosses our path because all things were made through him and apart from him was not one single thing made. Jesus' fingerprints are on everyone, even those who fit into our worst categories of human beings. Even them. Whatever's popping, whoever's popping into your head right now, the fingerprints of Jesus are on them. And every single one of us has someone popping into our head or some sort of group popping into our head. And, and maybe, maybe we need to look at whoever is popping into our head and start seeing our own face and recognizing that, well, he saved me. So I guess the spirit is still saving sinners. Because right? if, he, if he saved me, then that's what he's doing. And having that perspective. And that's good news. Right? That's good news because all of us have been there and some of us might even still be there if you're here this morning. And, and you don't know Jesus and you don't know the, the, the wonder and awe and, and the, the goodness of walking with God. Then, then I challenge you to not leave here before you submit yourself to King Jesus to cast yourself on him, to beg him for forgiveness, to receive the mercy that was achieved on the cross. And guess what? He'll give it to you. That's the beauty of the gospel. He says, come. He says, come. And when we come, he receives us. He receives us. And that's, and that's wonderful, good, beautiful news. And that's grace. Because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve the light and the life we've been given. And so I leave you with those words. Are we willing to view this world, the lost, the broken, the sinners, through the eyes of Jesus? Recognizing that we too were once enemies of God, hostile toward him. It's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. It's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you with all of our hearts and we thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you for grace. I really do. I know who I am. We all know who we are. We know what we're capable of. But because of your spirit and your grace, you have taken us from, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. And I thank you for that, Father. I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that your Holy Spirit would pour out upon this place. And Father, those of us who do believe, draw us into deeper communion with you. Help us to be drawn closer and nearer so that we might more rightly reflect the light of Christ to the world around us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.